Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. So welcome back to our uh, second week of our Christmas Carol series. And today I want to start by talking about uh, a pretty popular Christmas Carol, Deck the Halls. Right? Deck the Halls, I think all of us are probably pretty familiar with the Carol. Uh, I find this to be a pretty fascinating Christmas Carol because if you analyze the lyrics, you realize that this song is as much about preparing for Christmas as it is about actually celebrating Christmas. Right? The song isn't, isn't so much about like sitting there and enjoying Christmas. It's about like all the things you do to prepare for Christmas. You decorate, and you get the right outfit, and you pull out the sheet music. And I, I learned this week that the original lyrics included a lot more alcohol, uh, which, in all fairness, Jesus' first miracle was bringing wine to a party. So I think he might be okay if there's a little more alcohol in celebrating Christmas. Uh, but even with that, it wasn't so much about drinking alcohol as about making sure that you prepared the alcohol and had it ready for the party. It's a whole song about preparing for Christmas, which is kind of fitting because, let's face it, with the Christmas season, we spend a whole lot more time and energy preparing for Christmas than actually getting to enjoy it, right? You're going to spend more time decorating and shopping, trying to find the right gift and getting your tree up and uh, baking cookies and making an ugly Christmas sweater, although maybe I'm the only one that will spend as much time making an ugly Christmas sweater. But we're going to spend all this time preparing for Christmas, a lot more time preparing than we actually do enjoying those moments. And and I, I think this is okay. I think the reason why we're so willing to put so much time into the preparation is that there is a, a hope and an expectation that when Christmas comes, and whatever that looks like for you, whenever that is for you, but when your Christmas experience comes, that it's, it's going to be something special, that it's going to be more than just a party or more than just a family gathering, that there's going to be something supernatural almost that happens there, something transcendent. What we're looking to experience is awe, this sense of awe. It's that kind of intangible, that, that thing. You can't even put it into words. Like if you tried to put it into words, the only thing that would come out is fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la, right? It's, it's that indescribable feeling of awe that you get in certain times when, when everything is just right in these moments. And the funny thing about awe is that animals, animals will experience, uh, they'll actually get goosebumps when they are frightened, when they feel threatened. Right? There'll be this physiological experience of goosebumps. Human beings will actually get goosebumps when we experience awe. It's a, this positive feeling where we feel like we're brushing up against something transcendent, something that's bigger than us, 
And we feel this sense of awe. There's a couple of researchers, uh, Drs. Piff and Keltner, and these two guys, they're social scientists who have devoted themselves to researching awe. And in their research, they found that awe is a critical human experience, especially to how we interact socially. And that even just a couple of moments of awe will have an immediate effect on you. A couple moments of awe will make you less selfish, more humble, and more generous to other people. Just a couple moments of awe makes you more humble, less selfish, and more generous with other people. And they say awe is so important to the human experience, and yet they also acknowledge that in our day and age, we are awe-deprived. That in the last 50 years, we experience awe less and less in our everyday lives. And they say that people they have become more individualistic, more self-focused, more materialistic, less connected to others. And they say to reverse this trend, we suggest that people insist on experiencing more everyday awe. We need to experience more everyday awe. And I think when Christmas time comes, I think this is a season where we are hoping and expecting to actually experience awe. That if we could get all the preparations just right and that day comes and if our kids don't melt down and if our parents don't bring up politics, then maybe in the end we're going to have this experience of awe. It's going to shape us and affect us in a, a deeply personal way. And so we deck the halls and we get the right outfit and we do all these things. But as followers of Christ, who are looking to take the experience of Christmas deeper this season, we have other places to go for awe. And I want to look at another Christmas carol as well. It's the one that we kicked off the, series, uh, the service with earlier today. This song where we sing, Come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Come to Bethlehem. Why? To behold the king of angels, Right? He's saying, come, let us come to experience awe in the presence of God. And then there, that, that refrain comes in that we repeat, come, let us adore him. Let us adore him. Let us adore him. Turns out this song in Deck the Halls, they're really going after the same thing. They're preparing us to experience awe. But not awe from just, you know, the right circumstances, but with come, let us adore him. We're seeking to experience awe in the very presence of God. And what I want to do this morning is I'd love for you to open up to Matthew chapter 2. Because we're going to look at a, a very famous section of the Christmas story. And we're going to, to look at how uh, a group of travelers was able to experience awe in the presence of God and the pathway that they took. And how we, as followers of Jesus, we can actually start to, to take the everyday activities, the things that we're already doing in life, and redirect them to become avenues of awe and worship in the presence of God. In Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so I too may go and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it arose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Most of us are pretty familiar with this story. Probably you've heard this read at Christmas time, or uh, maybe you even read this with your family uh, at different points in the Christmas season. But this uh, story, there's a lot of unknowns that exist in this story. For instance, the star. Like, was it a planet? Was it actually a star? Was it a supernova? Was it a cluster of stars? Was it just an angel going ahead of them? Uh, I have really good news for you. I have no idea. Uh, and, and it can be fun sometimes to kind of try and like speculate, like, what was the star? Maybe it was this or maybe it was that. And, and that's all fine and good. And then, of course, there's the, the Magi. Like, where did they come from? It just says east. Like, did they come from Persia or Babylon or farther east? And we can kind of theorize and come up with these things of what God may have been doing in there. But to be honest, we don't know. And it, while it can be fun to speculate about some of these things, I don't want us to... to get distracted by the things that we don't know so that we don't actually take the time to reflect on the important things that we do know about this passage. Because there's uh, a really cool, a really cool story uh, that is being uh, unfolded for us here in this passage. All right? And it's this, this very simple idea that all creation, all creation is to worship Jesus. All of it is to worship Jesus. And we, we have to start by understanding who the Magi were. So the Magi, hate to break the news to you, they weren't kings. So this whole we three kings thing, total misnomer. Uh, now, sometimes we call them wise men, which gets a little closer. Uh, they definitely did have wisdom, but it wasn't just wisdom in general. Uh, a magi, these were actually like astrologers or men of the stars or, and even sorcerers that would kind of tap into spiritual realms and kind of supernatural stuff in order to gain their wisdom, all right? And so, uh, but they weren't at the same time, they weren't these like back alley psychics. These were men of prestige, men of renown. In this day and age, a, a, a man who was able to do this uh, was often put in a position where he would be an advisor to a, a, like a powerful uh, political leader. And so these men were likely advisors to whatever monarch they happened to serve. All right? And so it, it's kind of like if you, you took the Long Island medium and you made her secretary of state. All right, so that kind of gives you a frame of reference for what a magi is. And, and it says that they came from the east. We don't know where in the east, but what is clear, what Matthew is communicating, is that they weren't from Israel, all right? These were not good, God-fearing Jews living in Israel, abiding by the law. No, these were, these were pagan idol worshipers, outsiders from the east, who are actually currently engaging in the very activity that they would use to worship other gods. This like stargazing thing, the whole reason why they saw this star wasn't because they were worshiping the one true God, it was because they were actually engaging in practices that the one true God said, these aren't okay. These are, these are forbidden practices. These are even evil and wicked. And what's crazy, all right, what's crazy about the Christmas story is Jesus comes on the scene and one of the first people to kneel and worship the King of Kings is the outsider, 
the unclean pagan who is actively engaging in practices that went against the very nature and character of God. And God chose to bring them in. What's, what's awesome is God doesn't only show his dominion over the Magi, but he even shows his, his dominion over their stupid stargazing practices. He actually uses their stargazing practices, and he, he gives it a new meaning, and he redirects them so that they end up worshiping Jesus. And in this, God is demonstrating what the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians, that God has placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything. Jesus has dominion over everything. There is no corner of creation that Jesus doesn't have dominion over. And all things, all of creation is to worship Jesus, the king. And God is able to use anything to do this. And he demonstrates that with the Magi by taking them and their, their meaningless stargazing practices, giving it a new meaning, and redirecting them to come and worship Jesus. Now, just to be clear, God isn't saying, like, it's okay to do whatever you want because I'm going to turn it for my good. He's not saying, like, that he condones their sin or their idolatry. That's, that's totally not it. But God has this really incredible way of taking even our, our evil acts and then saying, well, you know what, Satan, he was going to use that, and he thought that was his, and he thought that was going to lead you away, but I'm going to just step in. I'm going I'm to actually take it back. I want that to be mine now. Yeah, no, I'm not going to use that for my glory, right? And probably one of the most famous examples of this is the cross, right? Because what could be more horrific and more contrary to the nature of God than watching the Son of God being murdered wrongly accused and murdered on a cross, right? Like that is the complete antithesis of God. And Satan's there saying, yay, we did it. And God's like, actually, I'm going to make that mine too. Yep, no, 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 I know, I know you wanted that one, but nope, nope, that's going to be mine. I'm going to use that for my glory. And I'm actually going to redeem all of creation through that. So, ha, it's mine because I'm God. And I get to take all things under my control, and he, he takes these meaningless practices, he gives it a new meaning, right? He gives it a new meaning, and he redirects it so that it becomes about worshiping Jesus. And this Christmas, we, we as followers of Jesus, we can actually engage in a similar practice. It's called possessio, all right? This is a, a word that J.H. Bavink came up with to talk about it. Can you say possessio? All right, now, now say it like you're an Italian like pizza maker. Like, possessio. There you go, there you go. Uh, it's not Italian. Uh, and Bob Inc. was like Dutch, reformed. Uh, but it's Latin. But this, this idea of possessio, I, I want you to stay with me for a moment because uh, it, it's not super complex, but I, I don't want to lose you because this, uh, I, I think if we grasp this, if we grasp this practice of possessio, we can really start to see how we can come adore Jesus in our everyday activities in life, all right? And so as we work through this, stay with me. There's a kind of a longer quote I'm going to share in a minute. But this idea of possessio is that we take something that is just kind of meaningless. It's superficial. It doesn't have any spiritual significance at all. And then we actually assign it some spiritual significance. We actually redefine what it means. And we say, no, this is going to mean this now. And we take that thing and we redirect it so that now it's going to be used as an avenue for worshiping Jesus. 
All right. And Bavink, as he talks about this word, a uh, possessio, he's very, he's very careful to say this isn't just like accommodating the culture. This isn't just adapting or like blending in with society around us. It's, it's not that. It's actually about taking their things and reclaiming them and making them about Jesus instead. And here, here's a, a longer quote, and I, I want you to just stay with me for it for a second. We would therefore prefer to use the term possessio, to take possession. The Christian life doesn't accommodate or adapt itself to heathen forms of life, but it takes the latter in possession and thereby, thereby makes them new. Within the framework of the non-Christian life, customs and practices serve idolatrous tendencies and drive a person away from God, right? Think of the Magi. They had their customs and practices that were actually, you know, their stargazing, their astrology, that was leading them away from God. But the Christian life takes them in hand and it turns them in an entirely different direction. And they inquire an entirely different content. And Christ fills each thing, each word, each practice with a new meaning and gives it a new direction, such as neither adaptation or accommodation. It is, in essence, the legitimate taking possession of something by him to whom all power is given in heaven and on earth. This is the idea of possessio, where we're able to take possession of things that might have had no spiritual significance and in giving them a spiritual significance so that they point us to Jesus. And Christians have been doing this for centuries. In fact, in fact, we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. Right? We celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25th. And most historians will tell you that has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus being born on December 25th, because he probably wasn't. He was probably born like in April or something along those lines. We don't really know. But the reason historians will tell you that Christians celebrate Christmas on December 25th is because in like the third century in Rome, there was this pagan holiday called Saturnalia. And it was this week-long festival celebrating the winter solstice and trying to appease their pagan gods. And it was like their version of Mardi Gras. And it was just a mess of a day, just sin and debauchery all around, all of that. And Christians in that day and age, they started to say, you know, there's this celebration that's going on each year right around this time. What if we we were to take possession of that spirit of celebration, but we were able to redirect it so it wasn't about some stupid winter solstice or the god of Saturn, whatever. What if instead we were to make it about Jesus? And we're not going to adapt any of their sinful practices, of course not. But what if we take that spiritual that spirit of celebration? And we say, you know what? We're going to make this about Jesus, and we're, instead of celebrating whatever, we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We're going to celebrate the incarnation, and we're going to decide for ourselves, at the very least, that this season is about that. And we're going to celebrate that in the midst of what's already going on in our society. And over time, guess what happened? The society actually started to follow suit. And this week-long frat party quickly became a, a reflective celebration of the king of kings. That's possessio at work. That's Christians being intentional, saying, all right, Obviously, the th some of the things that they're doing, those are wrong. We're not going to do that. But the celebration, that, that excitement and celebration, community and everything, like that, that's, that's not wrong. We're going to take that. We're going to give it a new meaning, right? We're going to give it a new meaning, redefine what it means, and we're going to redirect it. So now it's going to lead to worshiping Jesus. 
And Christmas time is a great, way, a great time for us to do this as followers of Jesus, where we can take up this practice ourselves. For instance, uh, who has a Christmas tree? Any Christmas tree people in your house, or you will? Uh, we just cut ours down yesterday. That was fun. This is the first time Lindsay and I have a Christmas tree since we've been married, so yay. Uh, but you might not know this, but the, the Christmas tree, the way we celebrate it was started by German Christians in the 16th century for a very specific reason. Because they were looking around, and it's winter, and everything's gray, and everything's dying, and it just feels like death is winning. And yet there are these trees that don't die in the winter. And what they did is they started to collect those. And they would either collect branches or the trees themselves, and they would bring them into their home as a sign that even though we are experiencing death all day long, we will never die because we have the eternal life of Jesus Christ with us. What if for you, every time you walked into your living room and you saw your Christmas tree this season, you decided that for you, that for you is you, you look out and you see out the window like the gray and the death and like the trees all bleh. But then you see this tree full of life in your living room that it became a reminder to you that you share an eternal life because of Jesus. And every time you see it, it became a reminder of that to you. That you get to celebrate once again, yeah, Winter is cold, and it does kind of stink, but, but I have eternal life in Jesus. Maybe some of you, you're going to decorate your house. You already have your house decorated, and you have all the lights going and everything like that, which is fun, but ultimately kind of a meaningless thing. It's just kind of fun. But what if we gave it new meaning? What if for you, as you decorate your house, you made the decision that what, what I'm actually doing is I, I'm kind of using this as an outward expression to show how the light of Christ is actually transforming me. And every time you pull into your driveway and you see your house that normally if you see your house at night, like it's dark and dull and you, you kind of like, it's not even there. But now you see it and it's all lit up and it's, it has all this splendor. That is a reminder to you that on account of Jesus that you get to, to share in his eternal splendor. And even though you might feel dull and boring, that there is a day that is coming when you're going to be dressed with all the splendor of Jesus. And that every time you see it becomes for you a monument, a reminder of who you are in Christ. Or, or maybe some of you, uh, anybody get gifts for Christmas? All right, I know as Christians we're supposed to downplay the gift thing. It's not about gifts and, you know, that's selfish. Can we just be honest for a second? Receiving good gifts is really fun. <laughs> it's, it's okay to say that, and it's okay to even like want to experience that. If, if there's something inherently wrong about uh, receiving good gifts, then the whole like message of Christianity kind of falls apart. Because if we're anything, we are people who received a good gift, right? And so you're, you're going to receive gifts this year. What if you made the decision that every gift, every gift you received, every gift you opened up, was for you a reminder of the greatest gift that you ever received? And there are times where I struggled to wrap my mind around what it what does it feel like to really receive the gift of salvation? I don't know, like... I get glimpses of it here and there, but it's hard for me to wrap my mind around. But I know what it feels like to get a good gift. And to be in that moment, to even just sit in that moment and be like, this is good. I, I can't even imagine how good it will be for me to receive the fullness of my salvation from Jesus. Like, yeah, I can't wrap my mind around it. But if it's anything like this, if it's better than this, that's amazing. And in those moments, we take something that, that really is meaningless. We give it new meaning and we redirect it. So it actually leads us 
to worship Jesus. And all of a sudden, we're actually we're, we're keeping Christ in Christmas, right? We talk about this idea of keeping Christ in Christmas, and what we usually mean is that we're going to have maybe a devotional with the family, or maybe we're going to read through the Christmas story before we open gifts, or maybe we'll have some time of prayer. Uh, all of these are great. Keep doing them. But what we usually mean is we're going to add some punctuated moments of Jesus intermixed with all of these other kind of meaningless things. But what if instead of that, we actually took all of these meaningless things and we infuse them with new meaning so that these meaningless things all of a sudden become about Jesus for us. And we're constantly being reminded of him and the good gifts that he's given to us. And then, as we do this, what's really cool is all of a sudden deck the halls and, oh, come let us adore him, are the same thing. Because <laughs> the whole time that we're decking the halls, it's actually leading us to adore him. Because all of these meaningless things are now about, they're new avenues for us to worship Jesus. They're about him and seeing who he is and what he's done for us. And this doesn't have to stop at Christmas. We actually do this in the everyday activities of life. Finding the things that we're already doing, the, the kind of meaningless, the mundane, and saying, wait, what, what is this telling me about Jesus? How does this actually reflect something about the gospel? We, we latch onto that. We give it new meaning. Right? We take possession of it. We give it new meaning, and we redirect it. So it's the avenue of worshiping Jesus. And as we do this, we, I think we really start to understand what the psalmist meant when he said, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We start to see everywhere around it, all things are actually pointing to Jesus. It's like that Tootsie Roll commercial. You guys remember that Tootsie Roll commercial from the 90s where it's like everything I see becomes a Tootsie Roll to me? Anybody remember that? Am I the only 90s kid? Uh, so, but it kind of becomes like this where all of a sudden everywhere we're looking, everything starts reminding us of Jesus because we've, we've taken this practice of possessio where we've started to redefine. We've given the everyday activities of life new meaning and redirected him to become about Jesus. And now he's everywhere that we look. Now, if we're, we're going to do this, there's two important details in this story that I want to leave you with. All right? The first is that they still needed scripture. If you understand the, the story of the wise men, the star got them close. It got them to Jerusalem. But they still needed scripture to get all the way to Jesus. And we need scripture if we're going to take these everyday activities and help them, allow them to get us to Jesus. The scripture, that is the, the new key meaning and content. That's the, the substance that we're pouring into these sort of meaningless everyday activities. And if we're not, if you don't have a discipline where you're routinely reading scripture and, and reflecting on it and studying it and filling your mind and your heart with scripture, then you're not going to have a lot of meaning to pour into these everyday activities. And so it's just going to be kind of sentiment, but it won't, won't have the substance to really draw out that sense of awe and wonder in the presence of God. Because it's in Scripture that we come to know the promises that he's given to us, right? It's in Scripture that we come to understand who we are apart from Jesus and who we are in light of Jesus. And if you take Scripture out of it, it really just, it, it takes the wind out of our sails. And again, it leaves us with sentiment without substance. So if you want to become proficient in possessio, one of the things we need to each be engaging with is a, a daily routine of trying to bring scripture into our lives. The next thing is that it ends in worship. 
for the Magi, when they come to see Jesus, they, they stop, the star stops above, and it says they're like completely overjoyed. And then they see Jesus, and they fall down. They bow down, and they worship him. As the Christmas carol says, it, it says, come, let us adore him. That's a very particular word. It doesn't say, come, let us thank him. Come, let us show our gratitude to him. No, it says, come, let us adore him. Because there's a difference between just being thankful and adoring somebody. And C.S. Lewis, he draws out this distinction. He says, gratitude exclaims, how good of God to give me this. But adoration, it says, what must be the quality of that being whose far off and momentary glimmers are like this? And one's mind, he says, runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. And this Christmas, you're going to receive gifts from a, a number of different people, probably, and you might receive a good gift from somebody that doesn't mean a whole lot to you. Maybe it's a coworker that just happens to nail it, and they get you a good gift, and you like it, and you're going to appreciate it. You're going to show gratitude, but you're not going to be like, I adore you because of the good gift, because there's a difference between gratitude and adoration. And gratitude is great, and we could kind of put this practice of possessio uh, into, we could take this discipline of possessio and put it into practice, and we might only get to gratitude unless we're, we're careful and we do this next step. Because remember, what we're trying to experience is actually awe. Not just thankfulness, but awe. Tim Keller, he, he draws this out. He says, now you say, oh, that's great news. God loves me, but that's not enough. That's not going to heat your heart. Why? That's an abstraction. You can tell yourself that, tell yourself that, and tell yourself that, and it's nothing but stoicism. It doesn't really melt. It doesn't really heat the internal structures and motives of the heart. Here's what does it. The true story of what does love cost. See, it, it's, you could walk into your living room and see your Christmas tree and be reminded that you have eternal life, and that might make you grateful, but that's not going to stir a sense of awe. No, it stirs a sense of awe is when you, you see that Christmas tree in your living room and it reminds you that you have eternal life. But in that, you're also reminded that Jesus, who is the life himself, allowed his life to be snuffed out on a tree outside the city gates in order to give you eternal life. Awe comes in when, when you drive up to your home and you, you see the lights, and you see the splendor of it, and, and you are reminded that Jesus, the king of glory, he was stripped of all of his glory and his splendor. He was stripped down where he was laid bare before his mockers and accusers and strung up on a cross and crucified so that you and I, we, could one day experience being clothed in his glory. Awe and adoration come when, uh, on Christmas Day, you're, you're there and you're watching your kids open their gifts. And the excitement, the joy, the smiles that are on their faces as they're ripping open the wrapping paper and they're smiling and they're laughing and you're smiling and you're laughing because like you're sharing in their joy and your heart is just melting as you watch this happen and there's just delight all around. And you realize in that moment that the best gift that your kids are going to receive isn't going to come from you. The best gift that you're going to receive and the whole world is going to receive, it was actually made available because your heavenly father, he watched his kid torn open 
and beat down and crucified, nailed to a cross. And he didn't come to the rescue. He didn't save him. He, he let him die on that cross so that you and I could have this greatest gift of his grace and his salvation. See, adoration comes not in just focusing on the gift, but coming to see the giver of that gift and how he spent himself in order to produce that gift for you and for me. In this practice of possessio, where we take the everyday activities of life and we, we fill them with new scriptural meaning, and, and then we take them, we redirect them to Jesus as we look to not only the gift that he gave, but what it cost him to give this gift. And we start to do this not just with Christmas, but in our everyday activities. And as we do, something really cool happens. All of a sudden, you have these, these little mini worship services going on throughout your day. Something totally ordinary happened, but you didn't see it with ordinary eyes anymore. You saw it, and you thought of Jesus. And you thought of the gift that he gave you and what he spent to get that gift for you. And it's these little moments of worship, these little moments of adoration that can happen in the everyday activities of our lives. And then we get to come together and worship him together at the end of the week. I mean, imagine what it would be like if all of us, you know, everyone in this room, you go out this week and, and each day this week, you have all of these mini moments of worship and awe all right, experiencing God's awe. And then we come together to worship God together. Like, I don't even think we'll need the sound system anymore because the, the sound of our voices alone is going to blow the roof off this place because we're not going to need any reminders. We're not going to need anybody to spur us on to worship God. We'll know it. We're going to be saturated in the awe of God because we've been sitting in it all week long in these normal everyday activities because we took possession of them and we, we gave them a new meaning and we redirected them so that it became avenues of worship each and every day. I'm going to invite the, the band to come up. And as they, they do, uh, we're going to go from here into a time of worship, an opportunity for you to come and adore him. And we encourage you to, to just dive into this. Take that time to open up your heart and reflect on who God is and what he's done for you and uh, reflect on the words of the song itself as you uh, allow him to stir up this sense of awe and adoration in you. Let me pray for us. Father, you have been so good and so kind, and you've provided us so much, and you are over all things, the ruler of everything in heaven and on earth, and all things are for your glory. And I pray that you'll give us a, a newfound ability to go out and to find new ways of praising you in the little things and the big things where everything we see in this world is used as a, a way of pointing us back to Jesus and the gift that he purchased for us through his blood and that we would become a people of worship.